Hi, this is Ron Hogan. Welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Jacob Tomsky, and he is the author of Heads and Beds, A Reckless Memoir of Hotels, Hustles, and So-Called Hospitality, published by Doubleday. Hi, Jacob. Hello. Thank you for having me. So this is such a fun read, and I want to get into it and, and a lot of the great stories you tell here. But one of the first things that I want to sort of touch upon is that... You know, it's a very standard sort of thing in memoir that, you know, you conflate incidents and people and you change people's names to protect their identity. But I was kind of struck how right up at the beginning of the story, you change your own name so that this is sort of the memoir of Tommy Jacobs. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, let's talk a little bit about what prompted that decision. Uh, Yeah, I actually didn't think they were going to allow me to do it. First of all, I thought it was funny that um, I would change my own name. Uh, Since I was changing everyone else's name, I thought it'd be interesting to sort of flip my own in there as well. And then basically, you know, I think as, as memoirs are, they're a slice of your life. I mean, you can't really encompass everything, especially this being a sort of a hospitality related memoir. I felt that Tommy Jacobs was maybe just a character or, or, or part of me, like one one strip of who I was. So I wanted to sort of name that because, you know, especially with the writing, you know, I've been a writer my whole life, but none of that's in the book. So I gave this sort of hotel series of my life one particular name. Yeah, and it's true that if we were going to go by heads and beds, it would seem like your entire life pretty much revolved around the hotel <laughs> hospitality industry. Yeah. But it's clear, I mean, you got into hospitality via a philosophy degree. So clearly there's a kind of interesting circuitous path to, to check out here. Yeah, I was I, I was always a lover of books and reading and things like that. So it, it was always a part of my life and, and, and learning and things like that. And I think that kind of love took me into this esoteric area. And then I found myself with no job prospects, which is what landed me in the business, just because I couldn't really find any way to, my, to make a philosophy degree uh, work for me. So yeah, it just I sort of randomly fell into it. But the whole time I had that eye and I was continuing to read and continuing to write. But yeah, I was constantly at a hotel uh, making money. Let's talk about how you started out down in New Orleans. It was a new hotel, freshly opening. And you were kind of rising your way from the driveway up through the ranks. Yeah. That's one thing about the hotel business. It's kind of, there's a lot of mobility there. There's a lot, it's all hotel work, but there's a lot of different departments. And you really, you know, I know there's a focus now on on hospitality management and things like that and studying the art of hospitality. But for for the longest time, and I think into the future it'll be like this, you really need no formal training. There, there isn't a lot of college degrees or anything like that. It's very much a job about serving people. So if you get in there and you start parking cars and you prove to work well with your coworkers and treat the guests well, there's a lot of movement that you can do. You can move to any department. You really don't need any training. It's always on the job. And you were on your way to a management career track yeah. within that hotel. And then at some point you just sort of walked away from that. Yeah, uh, that was because actually of my writing. I was working really hard at the job and I found myself working like 15, 16, 17 hour days. I was exhausted. I never had time to think or do anything else. Even my reading, which had been with me my whole life, I didn't have time to read. It was really bothering me that this career, although it it was burgeoning and I was starting to get all the joy from it, it was bothering me that everything else was falling away. And I realized that if I continued on this path, I'd wake up 25 years later and I'll have devoted my entire life to the hotel business. Maybe I'd be a general manager, but it wasn't exactly where I wanted to go as as my young mind. So I actually quit, first of all, because I was burnt out. Second of all, 
because I wanted to focus on my writing. And that's when I moved to Paris in the book. And I don't mention that, but I spent days and days writing. I wrote my first novel there, which was horrible. I don't even call it my first novel now. There's one after that. So that was when I made the decision to sort of focus on my art. So when I came back to New York after the money ran out, I was like, okay, now I'll be a writer and I'll try these. But I couldn't get away from the business because rent is high. So I immediately was back in, back in a hotel. There's this scene where you know, your roommates tell you, it's like, okay, you've got like two weeks to come up with the renter. We're kicking you out. <laughs> and sounds like within 48 hours, you had a job at a hotel again. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, I tried I tried to get a job in the publishing business. I tried to get a job in, in like catering and anything I could do. And nothing was coming out. I was trying to get some, I was trying to get a career, something that I could feel proud of. And like I said, I always loved books. So I went straight for that and just constantly got rejected. And it was so fast. I mean, I, I feel like even now I could probably get a ho- job in a hotel in 48 hours. They're just, they're hiring. I had the resume for it. If I apply, you know, I interview well, I've got a good track record. Well, so <laughs> not, not anymore, but so it's, yeah, it was fast money for me. That, that actually sort of brings up an interesting point and not to give away too much of the ending, but at the ending, you are still in the hotel yeah. hospitality industry at the end of the book. And now here the book comes out. <laughs> are you still in the hospitality industry? I am not. I am not. I left to focus on making sure the book was good enough. And that was where, that's where I felt it ended for me. That, that was such a pivotal moment of what happens at the end. And I, and I felt like that was a nice time to freeze the memoir and be like, you know, this was my life up to this point. And it seemed like that it bookended itself. And here I was. Yeah, I really uh, am not in the business anymore. I've gotten weird offers to get back into the business, which is surprising to me. Not to be front desk, but to be general manager and things like that, which I was like, did you read the book? <laughs> did you really want me to general manage? I, I, I have a feeling I'll probably back, be back in the hotel business in some way or another within a year or two. At what stage in your New York career? Because once you come to New York and you end up getting that job at, the, at what the memoir calls the Bellevue Hotel hmm. for, for very thematic reasons, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when does the decision come to you to be like, oh, hey, you know the thing that I should be writing about is this. Yeah, well, thankfully not too early. Uh, By that time, I'd written three novels. And hotels have been, you know, obviously involved in my life. So even in in the three novels that I have, hotels creep in in one way or another into the plot. But thankfully, I never really thought about it, anything nonfiction or a memoir or or really uh, exploiting the business as it were. And then I had the idea one day, and I was still – I was – back working on my first novel again after seven years to, to, to really refresh it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to start on this project as soon as I finish this. And then, and then I started taking notes and I started really focusing on every interaction. And I, you know, there's always pens and paper at the hotel. So I was, I started messing with guests and anything funny that would happen, I would write it down. I would ask the director of security, what's the most disgusting thing he ever seen. So I, I really started plotting and planning and being a journalist at work as opposed to just kind of like floating around. And then I got to work on the proposal. One of the things that comes up over the course of the book is you sort of pulling the curtain back on the industry side of things and the insider baseball sort of section where you're like, okay, you want to figure out how to get rid of the mini bar charges? You want to figure out how not to get charged for the movie? I've gotten a, a decent amount of flack about that, actually, because, I, you know, I, 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 I wanted to tell everything I knew. And there's hotels, the entire world happens in a hotel. So there's disgusting stuff and there's beautiful stuff and there's ways to cheat. So I just felt like, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and lay everything out. So yeah, the mini bar and the movies and, you know, how to get upgraded and how to get late checkouts and things like that. That's useful information that I saw people utilizing. And I just wanted to sort of weave it in there to make sure that when you finish the book, you know a lot of things that you didn't know before and hopefully had a good time learning it. The secret 
basically seems to be in a lot of respects. Treat the bellman and the front desk people right. Yeah. One thing that I've, I've seen since the book has come out, there's been a certain positive reaction from the service industry, not just hospitality, but just, you know, service industry. And I re- that makes me happier than anything because I, I feel like I hopefully this is a service industry book. It's about customer service. It doesn't matter if you're working in the mall. It doesn't matter if you're working in a bookstore. This is about customer relations and how you don't necessarily – sometimes people – think in a service situation that the other person is just a function, but they're really, you know, there's a lot going on there that we have, a, there's a lot of personality. And when you get to a hotel, there's a lot of moving parts. It's an interconnected hive of people. So understanding what they do and, and how to treat them can definitely improve the service that you get. And it's not about getting a sweater. It's about your, your next three days. So it can be very important. The Bellman aspect of that it seems so crucial in that you, know, you really sort of demolish this impulse that a lot of people have, this this whole sort of like, oh, you know, don't bother them. I, I'll just get my own bags. And it's like, dude, this is their job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think also uh, one thing that, I, that I've noticed is that, you know, people, they, they want to travel to a city and they want to get to know the city. That's sometimes if they're, they're tourists. They want, that's the point is to sort of understand what a city is about. And what happens is that they come here and then they get whatever they're Googling, it's obvious places and they, they really float on the surface. And getting to know a bellman, they're almost all born and raised in the city that they're working in. So they can be wonderful outlets to learn about the city as well as just have an idea and it can enhance your stay and people do find themselves immediately disgusted by them because it seems so superfluous and unnecessary and forced which is understandable but they're really just nice people you know with families they just want to be nice and help out and if you think about them in that way even if you don't want to take the help as long as you just realize they're not trying to do anything bad they're just trying to be nice if you turn them down nicely you're fine yeah there's a great story about somebody who checks in and the bellman comes up and the guest just hands him a five and says, you know what, I'm good right now. That's okay, thanks. Yeah. And, and that guy just pretty much has the run of the place <laughs> yeah. for the rest of his stay. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. That guy was – he was like some kind of god because he paid a bellman not to help. And that they were just – and it wasn't – you know, it wasn't that much money. And it was just like immediately everyone was like, there's a guy, there's a guy. He's a great guy, man. Yeah, if you do have to turn down a bellman, just giving him $2 just to hang out in the lobby, though, their face will – explode with happiness it's a cool thing to do it seems like there are definitely some battle lines drawn within the hotel structure like the bellman and the front desk at least try to put up a unified front yeah against management but there's and this also sort of surprised me is that concierges are also sort of like viewed as the enemy in a way yeah well i mean there's there's hotel dynamics and there's a there's a feeling of superiority i i suppose that you can take that directly to a kitchen and you know there's there's the top chefs or whatever and then there's the sous chef and then there's the, the line cooks and things like that those dichotomies exist in a hotel it's just harder to define because you know some front desk agents think that they're the king because they can they control it they're charging twelve thousand dollars they're the one taking care of all of these little computerized functions, but some people think the bellmen are the, are the face of the property, and then the concierge tend to think that they, they don't even work in a hotel. They feel like their job is the city, so hence they feel almost like they're not hotel workers or whatever. So uh, at least that's what I personally felt. I was pretty much the only position that I, I was always weary of a concierge, because sometimes they seem like a little bit like snobby, you know what I mean? As you're writing the memoir, once you've made the decision that it's like, you know, I, I should be writing about all the stuff that's going on here... Obviously, it's at a period where at the Bellevue, management is 
looking to crack down on everybody because they've just done this massive renovation and they're looking to cut corners and yeah. any excuse that they can get to, to reduce the overhead by letting somebody loose is possible. Yeah. So you're you're having to keep what you're doing under wraps, of course, in, in terms of letting people know that you're, you're that you're writing a book. You know, one thing that I learned from New York was to keep my mouth shut. I, I think I, the Bellman taught me that. It's like even when it came to gratuities, if a guest gives you a $100 tip, first thing you want to do is tell everyone you're working with, I just got $100, but you actually, it behooves you to keep your mouth shut about it because when they come back down, then every employee is going to be on them because they know this is a big tipper. So I kind of, through the game, learned that it's important when you have something good to be quiet about it. You know, as much as, you, and there are people that I was still am very close with, you know, years and years of friendship, and I never told anyone. Not one of them ever got word of it. Well into even after I left the position to, to, to fully work on the book, they had no idea why I left. They just, you know, they were like, they thought I was trying to start a new career, which I was. But yeah, it was, I kept it a secret for a long, long time. They found out about it the same way everyone did. They just caught an article about it and then they started my phone. There was one day where my phone just started ringing. And at that point, it felt great to tell them, but it was important to keep it quiet. And I did a good job. And now that it's out and people are able to, catch up with it what's sort of the reaction like from your buddies among the hotel crew uh they're they're super proud of me i mean there's probably some people that you know i didn't necessarily leave that job with 100 percent friends i had some enemies there upper management i haven't really heard anything from them but the bellman and my front desk co-workers and actually the concierge and everyone some of the sales team they've gotten in touch with me even including the first job in uh, new orleans a lot of those people have come after me and, and told me i did a great job and everyone seems very happy with me, and they—they're they, not as surprised, I guess, uh, because they knew every day I was writing and working. And then it's kind of one of those things that they're like, "Oh, you know," as opposed to being like, if I wasn't writing or anything, and that's all of a sudden this comes out. But they knew I was working on novels and stuff. So when when I came out with the memoir, they were like, "Wow, that makes sense." And then they were just proud. Were there any memoirs that you read as you were sort of formulating this that? that gave you a roadmap or a guide as to how to approach the subject? Sure. Uh, well, the first thing I did was read Kitchen Confidential because I knew that was just a groundbreaking memoir about the kitchen industry. So I went after that, and I learned a decent amount from that. I think I learned a lot, actually, from Eat, Pray, Love. That was one of the next memoirs I went after, and just the structure of that, it was like, it's beautiful, the way it's laid out and the short chapters and all defined, and, and it's taking a messy life, and really sectioning it out so that it's just it's one beautiful run. Uh, you know, when I first started working with the editor on this, I had a chapter summary. And then he was like, listen, write two chapters and then we'll kick the tires. If it looks good, you can, you know, drive it to the finish line. Otherwise, you know, we'll make some adjustments. And I actually came in with these tiny little chapters, kind of like Eat, Pray, Love, these little boom, 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 boom. So by the time I got to plot-wise chapter two, it was already chapter like 50. And my editor was like, what are you doing? And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. So I, I added them all together. But yeah, Eat, Pray, Love was uh, very formative. Let's talk about your editor for a little bit. You're working with Jerry Howard over yeah. at Double Day. To my mind, very few editors in the business really sort of get issues of work and working class yeah. and, and in a way that Jerry sort of really intuitively does. That he's somebody who, if you are writing about the realities of work in the American workplace. This book... I felt like it was immediately, you know, sellable or whatever. And so we went on a, a slew of meetings uh, with many, many publishers. When I first heard Jerry's 
Jerry's name thrown around, I was like, oh, well, definitely that would be top on my list. And then uh, I met with another publisher, and they, they were also quite interested. So it really came down to two, and what happened is I connected with Jerry. It was uh, at Doubleday. It was frightening. There was like nine, ten people there. Uh, it was like a firing squad. Jerry was in the middle, and uh, I, I know what he did before, and I uh, had an intense respect for him. And basically that's, you know, I was scared of him, and that's pretty much what made me decide to work with him because I was like, you know, the other one seemed so easy and nice and, and motherly and, 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 and I felt like safe over there. But I was like, no, I got to go with the guy that scares me. And it ended up being incredible. He's he's the best. <laughs> he really is. He's so good. It sounds like that he uh, he pushed you in ways to, to make this an even better book. Yeah, he definitely did. And it, it, it was amazing. You know, and I know, uh, you know, he's also Chuck Palahniuk's editor. So I know that I could go as far as I want. And he would be able to scale it back. And there were times when, you know, there was a lot that was cut out or he was like, disgusting, disgusting. You can't do this. You can't do this. He really, he really understands the story that I was trying to tell and the boundary. Cause, you know, if you want to, to, to connect with everyone, then you really can't stray too far. And he was just incredible. I mean, one of the things I love about Fight Club is that it has those kinds of stories. It'll just go to those gross out yeah, stories, yeah, yeah. those sort of like extreme fringe stories. But you scale it back here. There are, I mean, there are some out-tray stories here, but it never goes into like gross out territory. Yeah, there was a couple, you know, there are a couple stories that, like some death stories and some blood and stuff like that, that were maybe just more shock value than, I mean, these things happened. And I, I, I find, I, I feel that they're interesting and they should be explained. But for the initial story that we were telling and to, and to make sure that we connected with everyone, uh, he had an incredible eye for controlling me. Also the language, uh, you know, there's <clears throat> quite a bit of foul language uh, in the in the book, and he told me after he read the first draft, uh, I needed to go on a, I, I won't list all the words, but a blank, 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 blank diet. And I went, and I went through, and I started cutting. You know, he was like, less is more, but, and there's still quite a few in there, but I kept this little, it's a, one of my favorite <laughs> memorabilia, it's a little tally sheet of every foul word that I finally managed to get out, and there was like 45 of one particular, of the F word that I cut out. Yeah, so we, we, we worked hard to make sure it was effective without being, you know, just irritating or over the top. Like there's one reference in the New Orleans section where you talk about, oh yeah, you know, I could tell a lot of stories about people bringing their bondage gear to the hotels and stuff. But you know, honestly, those people are just the quietest, most unobtrusive. Yeah, they really are. That I didn't really, I didn't really think about that. You think that they're just like they all, they're all exhibitionists, but really they're. It's it's very adult, and it's very much like we come to a hotel in order to do this, so we won't be judged and we won't it won't be in everyone's faces so you know they kind of know that that's where they can go in order to bother the least amount of people and that goes all the way through they're not they're not trying to bother the neighbors they're not trying to bother the staff uh they're very adult about it yeah and, and you love them because you know they're not going to dispute any charges they're, they're going to clean up after themselves pretty well <laughs> yeah yeah they're they're aware that they're utilizing the hotel for its full potential and they'll mm -hmm. they'll act accordingly so towards the end as things start to wind down in, in this particular arc of the story, you do mention that there's a whole other untapped vein of, of stuff that could come afterwards of the anger management stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there a is there a Tommy Jacobs goes to anger management? I sequel? I believe so. I think there's much more to write. You know, obviously, I had a huge notebook and I cut it down to about half that made it into heads and beds, and then that was cut down, maybe another third taken off, 
for going too far unnecessary. And then I, it stopped it at a point where, you know, it was very strange. You know, I, I did attend anger management. It was a wonderful experience, actually. I had, I met some incredible people, people I'm still friends with, really insane stuff going on there. And so I, I, I think that story was just way too big by the time I got there. It was just, I mean, that is just a whole nother book. Plus, you know, sort of talking about what it's like to come back and, and just thinking about the hotel. It changed for me when I started thinking about the hotel as something I was writing about. I think that's something interesting that I, I could certainly expand. Not to mention, I, I, I basically, there's 1% of the celebrity stuff. If there's any interest in that, I've, I, that's 1% of the celebrity dealings that I had. So there's plenty more that I could write. And the celebrity stuff is, there's a nice balance in here between the stuff where you you just talk about like Mr. X, famous rock star or famous actor, and then the people that you do name by name. And yeah, I mean like the Brian Wilson section ends up, for example, being really sweet. Yeah, and I think it sort of is very sympathetic to him in a powerful way. I hope so. I, I was glad that, that that got in there. That was one of the first pieces that I wrote, actually, that and the $100 bill challenge with the Bellman. In order to get my agent, I wrote those two. I've been thinking about that Brian Wilson story forever because, it, you know, it goes over, it, it, it spans over time and, you know, it has sort of a twist at the end and, and it was it was wonderful for me. I, I kind of miss seeing him. But yeah, those were some of the two kernels that I had brought to my agent. That's, that's what we ended up working. Actually, interestingly, and I I should say this, my agent, Farley Chase, when I came, I had envisioned it more of a cocktail book, like a coffee table book, like vignettes and little stories you could pick it up, like lists, much like the appendices, just like little things like that. And, and it was my agent who was like, you know what, you need to tell a full story. You need to get them to read from page one to the final page. And I, and I never thought about it that way. I thought it would be better if you could just pick it up and read it. That was a huge shift in what I had. But I came in with these little kernels and these little lists and ideas. And he was like, Tell your story of that. And that's when we went to work on it. And that was like unbelievable shift. And I, everything changed after that. As I said before, I mean, you can read this and find these sections. But the key here is the narrative arc of you walking in cold into the hospitality industry. And then over the course of a decade or so, becoming this hardened veteran. Yeah. And, and burning out twice. Yeah. It, it was interesting for me to write it because remembering what I was like when I was young, when I was parking cars and I was enthusiastic and I believed in the business and I believed in the company that I worked for. And, and I, you know, I was, I, and my language is different. And I really tried to show that, that changed throughout the book and not only in circumstance, but also in the language. And it's like, you know, I, I start. You know, it's you're going to find the language increases, uh, the foul language increases because New York's a very, you know, foul-tongued town. I wanted to just adjust the whole character and, and really just have my story because I really did change it. When I think back in my own mind, I think about myself running around that hotel in New Orleans and how positive I was and stuff. And, and then you compare that to, like, my last couple days at work, and it's like night and day, completely night and day, a long arc. In addition to the possibility of returning to the Tommy Jacobs persona to talk about what happens to him after Heads and Beds and what happens to you after Heads and Beds. Yeah. You had been writing fiction from the beginning. Is that still on the table? Oh, yeah. That's what I'm working on right now. I worked on it this morning. Uh, interestingly, my first novel, which I wrote when I moved here, so that was like seven years ago, and that was the one that I had edited and then I made sure to freshen it up after five years and then I wrote this book and now here we are and that's another reason for the name change because I, I don't want to I mean I definitely I'm going to be hopefully known as the hotel guy I mean it's something I'm very knowledgeable about but I really do want to also be respected for my writing and hopefully that comes through in this book and then the next step would be to 
work on this novel, and now I have so much knowledge behind me, and, and I'm, I'm hitting it again after learning something else, writing another book, so I'm very excited for that, and that will definitely be come hell or high water my novel will be next. Speaking of being known as the hotel guy, did you go on tour? for Really short. Uh, we went to uh, New Orleans, obviously, because ha- uh, like a third of the book is set there. Uh, Asheville, North Carolina, because uh, my family is there. And then that was it. So it was just real short, real quick. They just wanted me to go a few places. I think paperback's coming out rather quickly. You know, there's been requests since then from other, you know, libraries and other bookstores. If there's any kind of larger tour, I think it was, would happen with the paperback, which is like July. Because I'm thinking in terms of going out on on, on the road and, and going to these hotels and, exactly. and sort of being known as the hotel guy by all these other hotel staff around yeah. the country. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, hopefully they'll, you know, I, I do get that question about am I just like a pariah when I walk into a hotel? But I think, you know, a lot of people and, and you know, a lot of the feedback I've gotten on Twitter and Facebook and uh, through email have been positive. Like, you know, good job. You know what I mean? Like I train the guests. Like, I think I feel like a lot of hotel people are happy, uh, maybe not upper management, but um, hopefully I'll be welcomed. But, yeah, that's the, the biggest irony of it all. If I ever get into some kind of large tour, I'll go from being the man who was always standing behind the desk to being the man who's always checking in. And uh, I've never been a professional hotel guest. I've always been a professional hotel worker. And I sometimes I get that question, like, what's the best hotel? And I'm like, I- I've never stayed in, like, any hotels. I was always just working in them. It would be hilarious to be a man who's now a constant traveler. That would just be mind-blowing. And there's, there's one story in here. You know, you're talking about what happens when a hotel overbooks and they don't have any other options left but to take you over to another hotel and comp you a room there. And a lot of people break down when this happens to them. And you talk about how it happens to you as a traveler one time. Yeah. And you were just like, oh, cool. I know how this works. Don't worry about it. And, and, and they're all just like, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it's a scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm thinking that now there's – you know, now is, is, in the future as you go off on the road – you know, one, there's that aspect of it that they that this guy knows. He gets it. He understands. Yeah. But there's also the risk of, oh, man, Tomsky didn't tip me. <laughs> this guy oh, yeah. I, I certainly – well, I mean, I'm looking forward to that. But um, I certainly am going to be uh, a very friendly and generous man when I walk into any, uh, any hotel. You know, I owe hotels a lot at this point, and um, I believe in everything I say. And, and tipping, is, tipping is kind of a way of life. Uh, when you get down to it, if, if you're good at it, if you're generous and you realize that there is a value in it, I mean, it's it's hard because, you know, I've been relatively tight on money my whole life, but I've always put an emphasis on tipping as anybody who's around a tipping position is going to tip higher than someone who's never worked in service or anything like that. Definitely, the, I, I think I cannot wait to start uh, tipping front desk agents. And I know that's happening more now. I've heard that a, a lot, that the temperature has sort of changed at the desk. So things are shifting a little bit, which is amazing. And I look forward to being part of that and throwing some money around. It should be, should be awesome. <laughs> well, we look forward to the possibility of you getting to do that tour for the paperback. And wish you the best of luck with whatever you're writing next. All right. Thank you. This has been Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I've been talking to Jacob Tomsky about Heads and Beds, a reckless memoir of hotels, hustles, and so-called hospitality published by Doubleday. Thank you for listening and keep an eye out for another episode of Life Stories soon.